0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: You know when you have one of those conversations that just just sort of seats home what you do and why you do it? This is one of them. Calvin Kotter is a tourism guide in Kenya. Doesn't hunt. Used to hunt but is sort of thinking about wildlife conservation in Kenya, about like, how can we actually do it? And I think hunting is a tool for wildlife conservation. Ecotourism is a tool for wildlife conservation. They're not mutually exclusive. And this is the conversation I have with Kelvin. What you don't know is that Kelvin was a part of the team with Robin Hood way back in the day that created this film that I might have talked about before called In the Blood. In the Blood, essentially, I watched as a 16 year old boy probably a hundred times and was essentially the inspiration for Blood Origins. So being able to talk to Calvin, and I only realized this at the end of the podcast, being able to talk to Calvin was surreal, number one. Number two, absolutely fascinating because he's, he's been through a change of when hunting was allowed to when it was banned and to now figuring out what and how to conserve wildlife in a place like Kenya. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings
2: awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I
3: start it? Brittany
1: my name is my hair look okay my name is Mike Axelrod start again yeah I hated it too (laughs) Braxton (laughs) you said something in the car to me you said that you were living on borrowed time Hmm. there's a perception around who hunters are what we're supposed to be and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter Man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm always, uh, you know, it's funny, this world, this, it's smaller than you think, right, Calvin? Definitely. How is it that you and I get to speak on over the internet or, you know, whatever it is? Where are you right now? Are you still I'm in, Norway? in Norway? I'm in
3: Norway. I'm the mountains in Norway. Uh, I'm here. Uh, my, my lady friend is here, Maria, and my son is also here. He's uh, he's setting up his, his life here. So uh, yep. But uh, I'm on my way to the States actually for some tourism marketing stuff.
2: Fantastic.
3: Yep, and then back back in November.
1: Fantastic. Back to, back to Kenya. Kenya in November.
2: Kenya.
1: Well Calvin Cotta, um, a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, put us together. And um, he, I said to him, I said, "Man, you need to come on my podcast." And He said, "No, no, 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 Calvin Carter is much better to, to come on your podcast." I was like, "Okay, look, I'll, I'll take anyone you can hand me." Well, um, Calvin Carter, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Before we 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 deep dive into several rabbit holes, you're exactly the kind of person that I enjoy speaking to. That I think the hunting community needs to speak to, that needs to hear from, because I'll say this, you're not a hunting outfitter, Calvin, are you? Not
3: anymore. Not anymore.
1: Not anymore. Not anymore. Well, Calvin Carter, give us an idea of who you are and what you do and your business.
3: I will. Thank you. I appreciate uh, this opportunity and to our mutual friend who, as you know, is more than qualified to be on a podcast. (laughs) He's like the biggest brain in the world.
1: Just tell him next time you see him. Just I'll text him. I'll, I'll email him too. Just say, look, Calvin, we got Calvin taken care of. Now you're next. Come on. I,
3: I will convince him to do it. Good. Uh, so, yes, um, uh, my family comes from the U.S. originally, four generations ago uh, in 1909. American uh, Oklahoma people, Iowa before that, uh, probably 200 years in the U.S. before that. So we were part of that uh, Anglo into the West movement, the Oklahoma land rush and the whole changing of the plains from bison to farming. Mm. So we were very much uh, um, part of that transition. Um, and then, of course, you had the uh, you had the uh, cattle wars with the sheep herders, the sheep people and the cattle people had sure, the fights.
2: Sure.
3: Anyway, my great grandfather came out to Africa after reading uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Game Trials in Africa. The book that he wrote after his big safari and he he realized there was a place that still had the true Pleistocene existing, actually the way you imagine it used to be with you know elephants and rhinos and so he he got on the ship it took him about three months to get here you know, to to get to Kenya, East, British East Africa at the time and he uh, <clears throat> he loved it, went back, got his whole family, and moved in basically. So being American... This was
1: like the 1910s, 19, 1915s? 1912
3: was when they actually settled. Okay. So that was actually also about the year that uh, professional hunting started. And Charlie was very much a hunter. Of course, that's what he m- mostly did in the U.S. And he came out to your town. So he immediately took up this uh, professional hunting uh, guiding gig. Um, the gig. The Gibbs brothers were the first ones to do it, actually, in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1912, and then Charles Cotter, probably three months after that. And uh, their speciality was American clients, of course, whereas the Gibbs was more the the uh, Europeans, uh, Euro- royalties and stuff. So, uh, so they just did their thing, didn't get involved in any politics, or then the wars the wars came. Through that whole transition, they they went there for ivory hunting first, and and uh, big game hunting. And then slowly transitioned into filming and photography. Martin and Osa Johnson were guided by the Cotters. Uh, mm-hmm. um, East, George Eastman of Kodak, he was guided by the Cotters also, and many others. But in those days, you know, a photographic safari was not like what we do nowadays. They would sure, set sure. up a camera, uh, one of those wind up cameras, at a place where they could drive the animals onto you. So the whole point was to get the action as the animals charge onto you. And of course, you mm. shoot it just before him. Anyway, different world. So, yes, then, then um, the tragedy. You know, rhinos killed my grandfather. Uh, malaria killed my well, my great-grandfather. Malaria killed my grandfather. Um, and then the war. So we locked the two the two other brothers, Bud and Ted, where it disappeared into the into the war, Um, Mm -hmm. but came Mm -hmm. back much later, Um, but Mm -hmm. uh, he came back to Kenya for about five years and then went back to the States in the 50s. Anyway, the bottom line is that all the evolution of safaris from hunting to filming to photography up to safari camps that we have today for photographic tourism has gone through our family history. And. You know, I, my, my own personal story is that I, uh, of course I'm pro hunting. I've never had a problem with hunting. Um, my, my formative training was really in hunting, uh, with Robin hurt, uh, who's a, who's a, I think you might know of Robin. And, um, -hmm. I think, uh, I had a, Is
1: that how you started Calvin? Is that what, when you, when you came out of school, obviously. You went to school in I went Kenya? went to school
3: in Kenya. Uh the bottom line was um yeah, I just followed what my father taught me, but then hunting clothes in Kenya. And I was too young to go to Sudan and to Zaire, where my dad was going at the time when Kenya closed. And even Tanzania was difficult mm-hmm. to hunt. So yep. they had this, Kenya and Tanzania had this problem. Um they, they didn't like each other, so they didn't make it easy for Kenyans to be in Tanzania at the time. Mm-hmm. So Basically, after when hunting closed, uh, I was taken out of school. We had no money. Dad had to give it all all back to the clients. And uh, I went to work for my dad in in his tourist camp uh, in the Mara. We had four tents. and We just started from scratch again and um, slowly built up from there. But while I was there, I realized, and that's why I learned how to walk without a gun. I went out every day with my Maasai friends, but often on my own. And I learned it's a very different thing when you walk in the bush without a gun. Actually, true. Without, yeah, sure. without something that can back you up. So you, you look differently into the bush. You, you, your senses are much more heightened. <laughs>
1: uh, mm-hmm. So
3: that was one thing I learned. And then I decided at about eight, 18 years old to go to Robin Robin Hurt and try, try the hunting. So I did that for about five years. And that, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot. But I realized there was a discrepancy no one's at fault, but the policies and laws were clearly um, what I what I was doing was anti-poaching and catching people who were poaching on this huge amount of land, game reserves, they call them sometimes. Uh, sure, sure. And yet the revenues were going straight to the state. So, you know, after five years, I realized that this was not really uh, – recipe for sustainable conservation of anything. Mm -hmm. So anyway, about the time of Richard Leakey coming in as the director of Kino Wildlife Service, I came back to Kenya and I started a wildlife management company to take advantage, but to, to take up that opportunity that Richard Leakey was bringing in with the User Rights Program. The User Rights Program was an attempt to Monetize wildlife, but not too much—just enough to offset the costs. So we were not allowed to trophy hunt um, and to sell items finished tanned in Kenya, but we could market them, you know, just just raw raw salted to Botswana. And so the skins Mm -hmm. all went to Botswana. That was in the mid '90s. So,
1: so that so hold on. Let me let me take a step back. So people were utilizing wildlife in Kenya. Just not in a trophy hunting oh, sense. Oh, the nineties,
3: yeah. There, there were many attempts at doing this, uh, and this was always seen as a uh, by uh, by the proponents and the and the and the and the opposition that this was the first step to trophy hunting. So there was mm-hmm. resistance from day one, of course. But you know what sure, we, what I've sure. understood and and what is clear is if you if you if you disincentivize landowners from having wildlife on the land. They will take it off to put something else on that has more incentive to keep. So it might
1: is that what you do, is that what you've seen in Kenya, oh, Calvin? Pulse, yeah. Like, yeah.
3: you know, Kenya's lost over eighty percent of its wildlife uh, in the last uh, forty years, as a direct result of of wildlife having no value. Now, I'll come to something that's happened recently, which is of much more importance to I think even the Southern Africans need to really understand what's happening here.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: the, the opportunity that this brought us was in the absence of hunting and this old cliche of, you no, know, wildlife is like a run-run painting, walking around worth millions of dollars to someone, but not to the person who surfaces cost. It's to someone. And what the industry has done generally in hunting and including in, also in tourism is the worst kind of uh, um, the assumption that trickled down economics works. It, it, it is the exact opposite. All the money is kept up at the top, and nothing comes down to the bottom. Yep. And that is crystal clear. Yep. So who's at fault for that? Well, the policies were set by the British uh, um, legal system being brought over, royal gain, state ownership, all of that. And the, mm-hmm. the African states don't want to let go of that um, control, the opportunity that they catch the money at source. But they also, you know, the people in government also have investments in tourism and in other countries in, in hunting um, to capture it at that side as well. But it doesn't just it doesn't get down effectively. But we can talk more about that. I think it is changing um, because it has to change. So when, when, I, when I was working with Richard Leakey, um, sorry, I did the wildlife management company. I saw a lot of problems there. Mm-hmm. And then I proposed to him. I said, Richard, why don't we start? And you, I'll, let me come and help you with setting up this this uh, model. And so we decided I would join him on a consultancy. Uh, and it was an ongoing consultancy that was specifically uh, to generate the wildlife, district wildlife forums. So when you hear of La Kipia Wildlife Forum, that was myself, uh, a, a fellow called Stanley um, from Machakos. And Grace Susiola of KWS we brought it to these to these farms there to start that uh, forum, which is basically the okay. first step in devolution. Uh, so basically the idea would be that uh, KWS would Wildlife Service would devolve the user rights to an area association or forum if the landowners themselves met the minimum requirements, but was monitored by their own by their own members. So we didn't okay. have to. Gettys didn't have to come and punish one individual, but would we'll just come and say to the collective, "Look, this guy's not doing well. Help him, or you know how to help him." Okay, Correct. so yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's always this imbalance of um, the people who know how to do this best, as in ranching for wildlife, are going to be people who understand the abstract value, the Rembrandt monetary mm-hmm. value, mm-hmm. and the people that don't know how mm-hmm. to do this are the poor people who don't understand that value. Because they've never seen it in their lives it doesn't exist. Why would they think that a impala is worth more than a herd of goats? That it's the same yeah. weight in protein. I mean, how can it be? Yeah. Not the same, but almost. Um, so it, it did. Uh, what I'm trying to say is there's inequity there. And uh, the the attempt was to try to get the uh, the big white ranchers to help the poorer African ranchers to come up and have benefits as well. That was a long process. Anyway, it didn't work out, and then um, Leaky had his crash. Meanwhile, I was also doing um, elephant con- uh, problem animal control, developing their training with Danny Woodley and Colin Frankum, and that was a that gave me a whole insight onto what's really happening with elephants in Kenya. And anyway, after Leaky went from KWS, there were Six or seven new directors, all of them ex I4 animal rights employees or directors mm-hmm. that have come straight into Kedria. So it has very much gone that way. But here's mm-hmm. the thing it gave us an opportunity in Kenya to look at how do you value wildlife in any, any other way other than killing it for a trophy right. or for, even for protein.
1: That wasn't on it the table. There was no, that option yeah, was gone. That
3: option's gone. And this, this is really the, what really happened, what changed the, the mindset. And I must say, it wasn't my, I, not my idea at all. It was a fellow called Willie Roberts and another fellow called J. Creed Cook. Uh, legends, these guys took a great risk to just lease land at the equivalent rate of the agricultural production that was there before to keep it, to turn it back to wildlife. That picks
1: so when they leased that land, did they make it, was it a protectionist viewpoint that they brought forward, Calvin? Yeah. Did they keep everyone out? Did they keep yeah. cattle out? Or was it more of a inter interspersed system with people, cattle there was and wildlife? Around
3: the lodges would be without uh, cattle, but further out, there's always a negotiation. You know, pastoral communities will never accept land that looks like it's got grass on, to not have cattle on. Even if you have all that, right. you know leasing or wildlife or tourism, whatever. You've got to have, culturally, they need to know that it's being used for their highest value, which is cattle. So mm-hmm. that is just mm-hmm. about negotiation and stocking rates negotiations and that sort of thing. But this is all easy. This is relatively easy to negotiate. What we have found since is it's easy to negotiate this because what, what, is, what is most wanted by the poorer people who own this land collectively collectively is regular income. That doesn't then. Right. And, you know, that's how people come out of poverty is if, if they got the hierarchy of needs into layer, layer three. Layer three is where they have enough money to improve their family um, continuously. Um, and then level four, well, is to have enough money to also contribute to their community. And so level three is the magic where, where um, women have pure children uh, the family has a chance to look longer term again, rather than short term desperation, make choices like mm-hmm. "Oh, we'll have less cows and goats and more this or that, you know, and mm-hmm. joining the multiplier economy. So so these fellows, these fellows started uh, this project. Um, one was in um, Selenge, another one was in the Mara <clears throat> on the north of Chororua. And it quickly took up a lot of steam I mean, uh, we were very interested in all of us in the local area. Because in the Mara, by the way, I've got a lodge in the Mara called Cotter's 1920s camp. And we're okay. outside on a group ranch. And we're one of, uh, there's about 270 lodges in the Mara reserve. And, and right. now. environs it's very, very over-congested.
1: Yeah. But- yeah, I've seen the videos of the... 60 Land Rovers on the riverbank and exactly. whatnot, hustling and bustling no. and whatnot.
3: Well, there's hope, though. It's come. We we have a new government right. who maybe will change this. But So, of all those, there's only uh, about 47, that is it 47, 48, that lease land as part of their basic costs. It, it's, it's part of their, their primary costs of operations.
1: Okay, so... So that I'm, I'm understanding everyone listening is yes. understanding. So in the Mara, the Mara is that for everyone's edification, the Mara is a national park in Kenya. Oh
3: yeah, it's a national reserve actually, but yeah, state land.
1: National reserve. And it's. Uh... And those lodges, two hundred. You said two hundred and seventy. There's two hundred and seventy lodges Correct. in Mara, oh. of which the vast majority, except the forty six, does the government say you can you can build a camp here? Oh no no.
3: Um, there's no if you can cut a deal with the landowners, you can build it anywhere. So some are inside the reserve. Oh,
1: so the government's out get. of it. There's all types Absolutely. of the tribal lands. Some people. are
3: outside and some are in. So if it's inside the game reserve, then there's the challenge of well, there is a moratorium on development, but somehow the big the big boys get their new lodges in. Like, uh, can I can I stop that? Don't worry, we've been to court. We tried to, we did stop one big one, but then ten more have come in since. But mm-hmm. so the future of high-end tourism in Kenya and in, in the Mara will be more and more these conservancies through lease conservancy outside, where we can control the the uh, more the experience of the clients and also, you know the the, uh, the wildlife what's happening there. And this is why this is the quid mm-hmm. pro quo of leasing the land. We have a bit more control on the activities on the land, but it's very difficult mm-hmm. because you're dealing with thousands of Maasai landowners. And so the whole theory of change to get them to understand that this is a way forward rather than just fencing and farming, uh, mm-hmm. and because that land is considering the price of wheat right now, it's probably three times more viable under wheat than it is sure. under any tourism right now. Sure. So, so there's, there's a lot of evidence to show that, going back to the abstractive extractive nature of tourism generally. You know, the African Leadership University did a study of the state of wildlife in Kenya. I think it, it was produced in 2020, COVID, year, And uh, it showed that the gross revenues earned from tourism in Kenya was 1, 1.08 billion in, in 2019, and only 1.1% went to landowners with, with uh, wildlife and 70% of Kenya's wildlife is outside of protected areas as in national parks and reserves. So 70% is on private community lands and they only get 1.1% of the revenues. So
1: it's a very big uh,
3: uh, uh, problem.
1: So it's essentially the same, it's the same, if I had to, if maybe you know this and I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think one of the biggest black marks against hunting as a resource use, as a land use in Africa, is exactly what you just said. The money never hits the people, Um, or if it does, nobody's willing to show it.
3: Well, there's a couple of things I'll say there, that hunting is far better than tourism in this. Tourism is very much more concentrated. Hunting needs a lot more space. There's Mm -hmm. always more, there's always more community involvement. Tanzania is the worst, frankly. But if you go down to Namibia, it's the best where it's the land is owned by the communities and they are the ones. So, so it all comes down and it justifies 95% of their conservancies. It pays for it, frankly. Mm -hmm. So for Mm -hmm. me, it's a wonderful tool, but there's a bigger problem with hunting. And uh, it's a two. I'd say it's a, a twofold thing, really. Number one is the voting demographic in the market countries is changing. To not they do not want this. They want to stop importing of lion trophies of leopard trophies. We've seen this all over now. And yep, yep. it doesn't matter what the state policy is, like in Namibia, you can have the best conservation policy. Which which revolves around hunting, but if if clans can't take the trophies home, there ain't no money. It ain't gonna happen. Sure. So, yeah. so we have to all have to think twice. And I think there's an opportunity in my view. You know, I think both sides put too much money into justifying the position that this is the only way. The anti's say, right. "Well, this is the only way," but they put too much money against hunting. Whereas mm-hmm. if both parties came and said, "Look, okay." if it was a level playing field and a country like Kenya was to allow uh, landowners to own the wildlife and free bidding come a lot, come, you know be 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 allowed so that the highest bidder can lease that land on a per hectare per year basis not not the price of a buffalo but per hectare per, per year basis or per acre mm-hmm. year per year basis and You'll you'll see the you'll see the um, anti-hunting NGOs, the the bingos. I mean, each of them are worth the uh, five of them are worth a billion each year. So there's plenty of money. Sure,
1: there. of course, yeah, yeah.
3: Would probably yep. put money into leasing land, and mm-hmm. currently they're adverse to it. They they don't like doing. It.
1: Why why are they abver- adverse yeah. to that? You would think that 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 would be like the primary yeah. objective of them to. Well, You've got so much money, go ahead and lease up as much land as you can to protect. Well, when
3: I look at myself, um, I i know my my business requires, I have no choice but to lease the land. They have donors who are saying, well, conditional, the donor conditions are a big problem for the bingos, where the donor will say, well, I want to save all the baby giraffes. So you have to show me how exactly my money is going to save Mm. those baby giraffes. So now the bingos are, are, are struggling. To basically, well, does leasing land save all the baby giraffe, or should they have an orphanage instead, where physically you can go and see a baby mm-hmm. giraffe? So what is what is missing here is that the understanding that the the lowest, com- uh, let me say, the the best buck you can spend in conservation today is just securing land, whether it's got a giraffe on it or not. They may come back, or you can bring them back. And if you do an incentivized model of leasing, whereby if there are giraffe or rhino or lion, that there's an even higher um, per hectare per year rate. This could make a big difference in how in how local people view biodiversity. Biodiversity right now is, in Africa, is is something to be taken out of the way because it competes and it takes space. It competes with anything you're trying to do, whether it's cows or maize, or it takes space. Mm-hmm the light, you know, trees, they, they cut trees down because they need the, the light to get to the maze. So they take the forest down. Sure, sure. And you know, it's, the problem is it's not their fault. Our policymakers have not given them the exact uh, right policies to work with. If the policies were to change so that biodiversity was actually treated like a, a real biodiversity, uh, a real land use, uh, biodiversity land use, if the government gave subsidies around Biodiversity easements, just like they do in the European Union and even in the US. I know there's set aside payments by states and all sorts of organisations to landowners in the states to keep land set mm-hmm. aside. And uh, mm-hmm. and I don't see why I don't see why this cannot be quite an easy shift across. And this would pull all this money, which is currently being wasted on everything above the line. You know, in terms of conservation buying rangers, boots, and, uh, you know, I mean, we do, we, we all still do it, right? Because that's just what, but we, we our cotters, we do, ni- I think, 90, 90% of our funding goes straight to leasing. And 90% mm. of our money goes straight to leasing. Whereas others will be 1% of the money goes to leasing, if any at all.
1: Well, because they don't really need to, right? As you just explained, exactly. the model isn't that, the, the model is not, a, not a lease model.
3: model. But our crisis in Africa, and you come back to hunting, is, has hunting got a future as a conservation tool? Yes, mm-hmm. while there's fully aware um, people on both sides of the oceans, the market countries and the supply countries. But our challenge is that in this world of, we call it Bambi, the world of the Lion King, anthropomorphic, anthropogenic, it's, it is just, it is too human-like. Everyone's got a pet. They can equate to um, the lion. No, the, I can see all of that is going to stop it in, um, you know, in the very short-term future. Mm. Ten years max, and the Southern, the Southern African model will have to change its course, in my view. It'll have to change its course. Mm. It doesn't mean to, to say that hunting doesn't happen in-country. That may be possible. But the big cost of this will be Landowners will divest from wildlife. And the big opportunity is look at Kenya, what we've done with leasing, and try to copy it, emulate it, come together in an in a bigger attempt to the world to say, look, if you stop all hunting, there'll be this much less land available to wildlife. We don't want that. The community would rather not have that, but they have no choice. If if you Mm -hmm. ban hunting, then, then um, this will be converted away from from biodiversity.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that that is? Do you think Kenya? Do you think that's what happened in Kenya to just be a little bit more simplistic and frank? Do you think that? Yeah. When, when hunting got pulled away, the. Areas outside of the national parks, which, which that statistic was fascinating actually. In my brain, if you had asked me, Robbie, where do you think the majority of the wildlife exists in Kenya? I would have said in the national parks because of the divesting model. But in fact, 70% of the wildlife, as you said, stay is outside the national parks still yep. today. Yep. So is the divesting model away from there is no value in wildlife that led to the downfall of Kenya? And you're saying, hey, we that's the model that 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 needs to come back. It doesn't have to include hunting, but that's the model. Well,
3: it is one model that cannot have the financial clout without this uh, so w- without the the trophy hunting, it doesn't have the financial clout to make a difference. It's literally mm-hmm. um, from selling zebra meat to compete with with uh, cow meat beef, or an um, impala to compete with a goat, it'll be sold about the same price, mm-hmm. um, protein. you know, So it's not going to compete with, with what they can happily do right now. Um, so really, it's all about that abstract value capture. It's about that. When I talk about the Rembrandt painting in the bush, mm-hmm. that's what wildlife is. It's only really usable as a right. roof in the rain. And the colors would It's
1: such a great example, because that Rembrandt does is valued so differently to so many different people. and and again, that's one of the big sticks that gets sort of smashed over the hunter's head, right? is that this big American values yes. that wildlife as a Rembrandt, Correct. right? and is willing to yep. pay the price of the Rembrandt Correct. versus internal the person on the ground goes, "I didn't even know what a Rembrandt yep. is. and I'd I'd replace that Rembrandt with my kid's comic book scratch yeah. doodle because to me it's exactly. the same.
3: And yet that and yet that wildlife that has so much value to someone out there it is actually causing conflict and pain, killing people, eating crops or killing cows or you know, mm. it's a direct impact on the local people. So there's many ways to look at this, but I would say You don't need to teach people much. You just need to give them the right policies. And the right policies are localized ownership, in my view. Open the doors to anyone who wants to do what they want on that land. If that's the way it's going to justify wildlife, let it be. We know it works in Southern Africa. We know it works in everywhere else in the world. Um, And yet... uh, at the same time, if you want to get the big bingos to the big wildlife NGOs to pull finger, they will have to come and compete directly to stop it. Instead of putting money into lobbying at government level, putting billboards to shame hunters, or you know, next thing they'll mm-hmm. be shaming the poor African out there who's just trying to get rid of wildlife, right? Who are these poachers mm-hmm. we're talking about? They're all, right. all local people. There's no one else but local. So who are these people you see bound up, you know, captured? They're usually just local people. So instead of making enemies, why not drive for an incentivized based model, which is okay, come together. So you need to do a theory of change process to, to understand what people want in their whole area in the future, to bring them in, maybe it's hundred square kilometers, an area. And then, then that theory of change process produces a land use plan that everyone then invests in. The conservation guys all invest in the conservation side and the leasing and the human development side invest in the villages and the towns, and the microfinance and the multiply economy, which is where our growing population has to be. They can't all be out there mm-hmm. cutting a tree and pushing a goat. There's no future for them. They see that. They all have phones. They can they can they read the news just like you and me mm-hmm. every day. And they need choices. And this is This model relies on one thing: a massive amount of money brought down for this purpose. So let's look about this amount of money. Uh, So if Kenya is earning one billion dollars a year from tourism alone, and and the Mm -hmm. wildlife NGOs earn about or generate about five hundred million, it would cost. I I worked. I did a small piece, uh, not piece, but we we Mike Norton Griffiths and and. um, did me a small um, favor, and he figured out that it would cost about $600 million to secure about 150,000 square kilometers leasing the land, where it is most at risk, where where, where the wildlife is annually. most at risk, and the people are most at risk annually. $600 million a year, and that would get at, at $50 a hectare, and this would get to about between 8 and 10 million people. These are the people you read about. Kenya's going to have a million people die of starvation. These are the people we're talking about. Isn't that mm-hmm. a holy grail that solves
2: mm-hmm.
3: the biodiversity? Well, it doesn't solve it completely because it's obviously a transitional process. You, you, you know, the whole management of the land has to kick in with the people. This is a, this is a partnership that we have to do. That's what we've developed in the Mara, and the Mara Conservancies, um, is how to do that partnership. And I recommend. I recommend uh, going onto on the website of the Mara Conservancies uh, uh, organization to have a look at how it's works.
1: So, your, your leases are part of the Mara Conservancy?
3: Yes. We're in a place called Rakesi. We're one of uh, 17, uh, it changes. There are new ones added quite regularly, but I think it's 17 now. Conservancies surrounding the Mara. It is, it is an area bigger than the Mara Reserve itself and it's uh okay. it's uh the the benefactors or the landowners benefiting uh are numbering up to about uh, 300,000 people benefit from it so
1: Colin are you not worried cuz obviously in the hunting model in the leasing model in the hunting well, space and maybe you you just haven't described these yep. details you said per hectare per year i'm assuming your leases are 5 10 15 sure. year leases 20 year leases sure. Because you'd have to have that kind of um, sort of affirmation before saying, okay, I'm going to invest all this money into yep. a lodge. Um, the other worry that comes along with the leasing model is, you know, so that in Africa is known for, you know, a little bit of mm-hmm. corruption and someone coming in and going, oh, Calvin's giving you 50 bucks mm-hmm. a hectare. I'll give you 60 bucks a hectare yep. and see you later, Calvin, the new, the new players on the block.
3: Well, ultimately, ultimately, that is a pretty healthy process. <laughs> that's exactly what we want to ha- happen. And uh, if I'm a hunter and the big conservation NGO comes and bullies his way in, th- that's actually cause, that's success. Actually, something's working. Either I, yeah. I I foot up or I go to the next place that needs me, where they are not where they are not going mm-hmm. to. So, but obviously there are long term. Uh, uh,
1: well, that's the key. Can the long-term sustainability, even though you're bringing more money to the yep. table, is bringing more money to the table sort of a a symptom of you hating the other land use and kicking it yep. out, okay, from so, a hunting model perspective, but then once you have it, you do nothing with well,
3: you, it? You know, it's never one or the other. It's both. Often, you'll have the very mm. first thing that animal rights groups do when they take over land is secretly asked for someone to come and shoot a, a buffalo that's killing people, or whatever. You know, it's there's always there's always a, a crossover of these things, mm-hmm. and ultimately, multiple use is the best way to to apply lack. Right? So, in, in the areas we're talking about, there's going to be agricultural areas. There's going to be uh, primarily there's going to be where are the areas that we need to harden the soft edges between people and wildlife, people. Agriculture and wildlife to harden the salt edges. Mm. So you're talking about villages um, and high intensity agriculture, properly fenced off. So it's not mm-hmm. it's not an easy, you know, the wildlife doesn't get in there. Um, and then mm-hmm. there'll be other areas where where there'll be multiple use happening. And and I think mm-hmm. I, I'm not too worried about the loyalty of the contracts. I think it has to be. Cyclical enough, like every fifteen years, where someone has the chance mm-hmm. to come in. As long as you keep your deal, mm-hmm. as long as you're paying your your mm-hmm. your money, um, it's probably going to be as long as it competes with the. You see, it's not hunting as the enemy. It, it, it is right. actually, is actually the other land uses. It's the trying to grow crops on land that doesn't sustain yeah. it, which is mostly in, yeah. in our area in uh, dryland Africa. To grow maize in sandy soils is ridiculous. So it's just doomed to fail, mm-hmm. and it creates deserts. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we we'll go into a whole discussion about that.
2: Yeah, I
3: mean, the main thing is to give the framework to people and to the mm-hmm. communities. The communities, the landowners are smart. And you talk about corruption, no, there's no corruption in the Mara. Not one. Google it. Mm. There's, corru- you see, the problem with with uh, uh, corruption in Africa, historically has been cooperatives funnel money into an account representing everyone, and then the three guys who control the account run off and buy a Mercedes. But mm-hmm. in our model, it's straight up directly from the from the Lisi to the Liso by Mpesa phone banking. So there's no funneling of the money. The agreements are gotcha. made by the committees that we work with together. So each conservancy has its own committee. They negotiate. They do their thing.
1: But the money's not funneling into the no, committee.
3: Never. No. Gotcha. So that's the key. Mm. No, it's it's a journey we're on. And Kenya, I, I do recommend strongly that the Southern Africans look carefully at what is happening. Because we're, we know exactly what's going to happen to your wildlife when hunting is stopped. When you can't sell a lion mm. anymore. You can't sell, mm-hmm. you know... When you can't sell that big buffalo anymore. Um, you
1: have to divest. So Calvin, what would you recommend? What would you if you had if you had the, the the magic wand, you're the wizard of the world here, and what what would you recommend to the hunting fraternity? Hey, you're on a path right now that I see that could very much land up where we were in nineteen seventy seven in Kenya. What do we need to do? What would you recommend? What do you think would be something that could stem the tide, if yeah. not turn it completely? The most
3: important thing to do is collect your data. Stop fighting. Collect your data. What is the consequence of completely stopping hunting over a period of time? In South Africa, if you, if you were to reduce hunting over a period of five years down to 10% of what it is now, uh, what would actually happen? Which areas would lose? Which areas would lose income? Mm-hmm. And what, what time frame would the landowners have no choice but to remove wildlife and put goats, cows, and sheep in? Because they ain't going to wait around for tricky governments to decide that they own wildlife and mm-hmm. can decide your fate again. Because that's the problem here. It's yeah. like with the rhino. The white rhino has now gone back to state control after being pretty much in the private Sectors control. If you buy a rhino, it was your rhino. You hunted it. You did this. You did that. You had the the increased numbers, but now with that whole story of the uh, Trojan horse uh, hunting uh, poaching story, um, they they uh, basically took took it back under their wing and said no more nothing. You can't do anything. So
2: mm-hmm. you,
3: you can see landowners divesting from rhinos as fast as they can, right? But how do they do that now? But you know, with everything else, you can just turn it into built on. Just get your data. That's the question. What to do? Get your data and then pull together on an Africa-wide context. If hunting of iconic megafauna of Africa was to stop in the next five years, how much land would be lost? You know, you could talk to Amy Dickman about that, but basically it's mm-hmm. twenty times the land is secured by hunting than is secured by tourism. That's.
1: I think it's two and a half times. One point five, two and a half times. One point five million square kilometers right now secured by hunting. And half of that, half um, of that land is, uh, about 750 is is under national reserves
3: and national parks. I I, I look at it a bit differently, but, you know, uh, so national parks and reserves, let's get this... Uh, that is that is not about tourism at all. You know, they should not be considered as tourism. You see, National Parks and Reserves are, in all countries in Africa, uh, should not be considered at all in the context of tourism. It sounds pretty strange me saying this. But if you look at the laws, it, their purpose is biodiversity conservation, and they have tourism, obviously, to help fund. But their primary funding mm-hmm. is from the state treasury tax base, and that's what happens. But the problem with this is that if you have a lot of tourism like the Mara, it overwhelms and it's a source of capturing the money at source by the government, Mm -hmm. and it's incentivizing all the big players to come in and squash into the middle. But if you were to have tourism outside, or the purpose of tourism inside to be leasing land outside as well, then it would be more justified. That's another discussion. But uh, I believe that tourism should be on private and community land entirely. And uh, if you want mm-hmm. to go into the game reserve or national park, you pay through the nose, and that money also contributes mm-hmm. to leasing land or a biodiversity buy- a subsidy to the landowners outside. It's
1: um, a great idea. Yeah, Calvin, do you think in your lifetime you'll see hunting come back to Kenya? Uh, I
3: don't think it's going to ever happen here. Um, I think now that there is there is this new model. For conservation leasing. I think that's. Uh,
1: when did that start, Calvin? When did conservation leasing come to bear in Kenya? Last five years, 10 years, like or it's been, been around for the a little bit
3: 18, 20 years? You know, the problem with conservation leasing okay. is it takes years to get. Just in my area, I've got 7,000 landowners, and I have to bring them yes. in together to all. And the communities are, first of all, communities make decisions. By consensus, that there's one person can mm-hmm. throw everything off. Very mm-hmm. difficult. So it takes a long, long, long time. And it's a constant battle to, to make it continually work. Because remember, we cut a deal with the old boys, but the sons are coming up. And they, they don't have any cows. They're not the shareholders of the mm-hmm. lodge sites. They don't have you know mm-hmm. money in the bank. But they're hungry, 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 and they've got education. So they're like, wow, I've got to change the deal. But, you know, that is also part for the cause. And these are very intelligent people who fully understand what uh, the cost of business is and what the land can produce. So in the Mara, the average the average uh, lease, lease amount per hectare is about $80 a hectare, which is about equivalent to what you'd get from maize in a good year. Well but maize doesn't work every okay. third year, so you know it's actually a much better period
1: and you're paying that for every single hectare in the Conservancy oh, yeah. versus maize wouldn't be able to be planted on every uh, egg- hectare oh, obviously.
3: Yeah. everything everything's is yeah. covered yeah okay so it's a it's a journey we're on and um, I'm happy to elaborate each of these subjects on I-
1: is that lease is that lease cost being um is being are you solely responsible for that lease amount, Calvin, or is there multiple lodges that come together to say, "Okay, we think you guys have decided. Okay, yeah. I think we could do three lodges. Obviously, we want to keep this small. We want to keep it exclusive. We want to keep the the traffic down, yeah. because that's a hell of a, a lease price to hold yeah. every year to be, you know, for, for the tourism dollar yeah. to to pay off, right?
3: Well, I think that's a great question, um, and the answer is the more privacy you You require the more you better be on your own, and you just put more money on it, uh, put more money Mm -hmm. down. And that's what we have done. Although we do have mobile tourism partners in the area, we've got actually another tourism partner outside the first phase of Conservancy. He's in the second phase, which is going to be coming up in the next couple of years, we hope. So the answer is yes, it, it is a lot of money. But if you consider what tourism makes, and can be can make the investor it is it is a small price to pay. And uh, mm. you know there's there's uh there's a lot of in my view there's a case to be had for all tourism lodges and even the selling chain the agents should be putting twenty percent of their net profits back in towards leasing uh if not mm-hmm. in advance. So some lodges are doing some lodges are doing twenty one, twenty two, twenty three percent of their revenues, their gross revenues, into leasing. We're doing about fifteen, sixteen, um, mm-hmm. and I can see that increasing up to up to twenty soon. Um, mm-hmm. But if you consider that um, we are selling the nature, we're, we're creating, we're we're accessing this abstract value. Of course. And exactly. we, if we're not bringing it down to secure that same nature that we're, you know, glorifying in, then we are our own worst enemies.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No no investment back in the land means you're just exactly. raping it for, for, for exactly. what you want.
3: I mean, we could just drive around because it's not hunting. We're not actually taking anything from it. But we're not giving the Maasai an alternative to not... Doing something, them not doing something else themselves, you know, like uh, farm making fencing. The right. big danger to the Maori ecosystem is fencing, wheat fields, fencing, mm-hmm. um, and monocultures of cattle.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's you know, it's it's interesting. I it, I've had a lot of conversations lately, specifically in the regenerative agriculture mm-hmm. space, like with the Savory Institute. You know, done by Alan Savory. There's a couple of guys in South Africa doing it that have this sort of perspective now of how you integrate the human system the cattle system and the wildlife system all to benefit one another um and you know the the pressure that they're putting on the land like these guys will intensively graze the guy said something crazy like a thousand head of Gosh, I can't even remember the number. It was an astronomical number, like 500 head of cattle per yeah. hectare. I was like, "For well, how? What? I said, they, they must be like shoulder to shoulder. And he goes, it's just there for like yep. two days, and then we yep. move them on. And the dung and the browsing pressure yep. and whatnot just causes biodiversity to go yep. through the roof. And, and you pay the person to move the cattle, right? Just like that. Keep them localized. And, and I said, what about fencing yeah. and stuff? He says, no, it's, now we're back into the shepherding yeah. days. Shepherd them, keep them tight, slowly move them around exactly. the landscape.
3: Yeah, I mean, we, we, um, <clears throat> we see that in the pastoral communities. The old people, the Maasai, the Samburu, they know all about holistic grazing. But on a landscape, mm-hmm. on an ecosystem-wide level, but when now with mm-hmm. subdivision in Kenya, you bring their lands down to 100 square kilometers, oh, 2,000 acres, 20 acres, that doesn't compute with their reality at all. Yeah, But they're, they're trying to get their land so it's not stolen by some bigwig. So they would rather have it uh, um, surveyed and beaconed and fenced, than they sell grass. Mm. The so, they, mm-hmm. so, you know, they'll have someone else's cows in just for that period. It, it's a, for sure, holistic grazing has a place in all of this. And for our little conservancy, our next plan is to have a, a conservancy herd of high-grade cattle that we will do rotational grazing and manage it just like that. Um, so, it's Perfect. a second dividend for the Maasai. We, we also, mm-hmm. one of the big uh, developments or interesting ideas we're looking at is this idea of collective benefit and liability. Uh, instead of having this militarized, disincentive-based control mechanisms that we've been using in wildlife for years. What do you mean? So really, basically, punishment is not a reason people stay out of, out of doing the wrong thing, not necessarily, mm. especially when they're starving, hungry.
1: You mean punishment for taking yes. wildlife?
3: and in Kenya, it's 20 years yeah. or 20 million shillings fine. So what we do is we do the payment to a collective of 7,000 people. And that collective is pay- that collective payment is made every three months. We then see what's happened in that three months, and we do a small deduction of each herd of cows that went in fifty dollars nothing really by
2: mm-hmm. uh, each mm-hmm.
3: poaching incident, which is very rare to be honest, but anyway, mm-hmm. so it might be ten incidences in the month in those three months and we we bring the elders in who it's their land so we 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 have, we basically come in to manage their land, and we pay the lease. We deduct it because they couldn't control their community. Somehow cattle are there when they shouldn't be there.
2: So mm-hmm.
3: we tell them. They then, at, at the meeting where we're giving the money, we would basically say, this is what you should have earned. We deducted $50 times, times 10 because of these incidents of here, 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 here. And we hand the meeting over to the elders, and the elders then come and say, Yes, we, we found out who it was. It was all you know the, the names of the people, they went in on those, 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 days. We find them five times more and we've replenished the account. So what you have is a is a distancing of the punitive side of it from of, of controlling negative activities inside the conservancy. Back straight back to the social structure of their own community and their own agreed mm. leaders.
1: Community It's policing, not me, essentially. A,
3: a, another white guy. We've got to de-racialize this whole right. conservation story. It is not mm-hmm. about us. The quicker we all wear blue shirts and not green shirts in the bush, the better, by the way. It's, mm-hmm. it, in the future, there's no chance of that militarized fortress conservation stuff happening anymore. In my view, it's got to go. And we've got to have these mm-hmm. sort of social control, their own methodology of social control, their own village social control working so that we can positively politicize wildlife and biodiversity. That's been a major, major But I mean, we're mm-hmm. still, still in formation. We're still learning how to do it. Uh, it's still in early days. Uh, we're not ready to, to show it to the world yet, but these are the ideas that we're developing in Kenya. Um, I mean, anyone can come and see what we're doing. Um,
1: Well, Calvin, when you're ready to show it to the world, I'll be happy to tell your story. We're the the best storytellers in the world. Um, yes, we are obviously advocates for hunting, uh, but we're advocates for hunting because we understand the truth behind what it does for wildlife, for people, even though the hunting industry, unfortunately, tends to not focus on the benefits and the consequences of the action. And that's all we're interested in doing. Um. But no, I love it, man. I love the story. I love, you know, it, it. it's very reminiscent of what, again, it's, you just have a different value chain, which is ecotourism where you are, you don't have hunting as a value chain uh, component. Yeah. Okay. But the model is, is certainly replicable anywhere else in Southern Africa. Okay. And it is to some extent, but I think the idea of. I think a lot of people are starting to change their their thought processes around involvement of local communities, involvement of and I really like that I really like that payment model, which is not centralized because you're right it it almost people are like, well, how can I get some of that money versus where you said it's all spread out, everyone gets their money and I really again like the last thing you said, which is you know essentially community yeah. policing, you know, don't bring the colonial. Militarized stick. Yep. Let the community do what it needs and to. They do do it.
3: I mean, if the money, if the if the base uh, values are be, that are being paid, like the per hectare per year rate, is high enough, then they really will defend it and protect it. They they don't want to be losing even a single cent. Mm-hmm. You, know, you think of seven thousand people. Each of them will be a lot less than a single cent. It'd be a nickel or something. Sure but uh take a take a nickel from a poor man and see see what happens to your politics
1: so, 100% well kelvin i really appreciate your time i'm glad we finally connected um yeah i'd love to i've never been to kenya um i okay. uh, it obviously has a storied history when it comes to the the loss of hunting and land use and wildlife conservation um i'm glad i have you on the podcast because one of the earliest podcasts I did and probably our most uh, well listened to podcast, it was our sixth podcast. I think you're gonna be like in the two hundred eighty range, uh-huh. okay? This is number uh-huh. six. It was with a a young Kenyan woman animal rights activist. Holocombe. Her name was her name was Mimo oh, Some. Mimo. She ran a youth a youth environmental organization and she came into our Instagram she DM'd me through Instagram. She goes, I do not understand the, the, the meaning of your Instagram page. And I said, well, this is what it is. And then she proceeded to tell me how everything I was doing was wrong. And I said, I can't defend me myself through Instagram. I said, well, why don't you come on my podcast and you can ask me anything you want about hunting. Any question, if there's nothing is not on the table, and I will answer it as truthfully as I possibly can. It's an hour and a half long conversation. And 45 minutes in, you could hear her go, huh, I didn't know that. And so it was a fascinating conversation. I I really enjoyed the conversation with her because I think that whether she's been fed a certain narrative and rhetoric through the I-4s of the world, that, that probably Nairobi is just like a really big space that occupies as you say bingos i love the i love the acronym of bingos i may use that in, in the future um, but it was it was almost it was almost nonsensical the stuff that yep. she was saying she was saying for instance i'll give you one that that pops into my brain right away that americans come to africa i'll give you two one the americans come to africa because they've already killed off all their wildlife and In America, and Africa is where they see where they can come and do their killing. Number one. And I was like, no, the North American conservation model is probably one of the best wildlife conservation models in the world outside of Southern Africa that is both formed on the basis of hunting. Uh, Two, she said, Americans come to Africa to hunt elephants because the ivory, they can then turn around and sell the ivory for $50,000. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's illegal to do that. <laughs> I'm like... So anyway, anyway, it was a fascinating conversation and Kelvin, I love it, man. I, when I come to Kenya one day, I will come. I need to bring my wife. Um, I'd love to meet you in person. Oh, you friend.
3: come come and see, go check us out uh, at cotters.com. Uh, I will.
1: Yeah, I'll tell people where they can find yep. you, Kelvin. Uh, Find more information about who you are. Uh,
3: So uh, uh, www.cottas.com is the best place to see.
1: C-O-T-T-A-R-S.
3: And uh, Cottas Wildlife Conservation Trust, you'll see all links are there under the cotters.com. So that's easy enough. Um, Mara Conservancy's uh, website is uh, www.maraconservancies.org. O-R-G.
1: outstanding um, outstanding
3: then I recommend uh, another uh, uh, website that we help develop and it's the theory of change process to convince landowners how to keep the land into into biodiversity and it's the uh, uh, www. Uh, iucn. dot mm-hmm. org slash F L O D, blood. F L O D, first line of defence. Check it out. And that that'll absolutely first line of defence. It's quite technical, but it gives you a, a really that that's being practiced in five countries at the moment, all over, um, in hunting areas as well as photographic tourism areas, and it's a uh, it's, it's a mm-hmm. tool that is used for getting getting uh landowners, um, I'd say, on the right on the same page as the investor.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Calvin, thank you, man. Thank you. I much appreciate it. We need to do it again. We'll do it again. Okay? Just
3: call me anytime you want to have a chat or follow up. We'll do it.
1: We'll do.
2: Well, that's it for today.
1: I appreciate you listening. As always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.